Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. We're in week six. As, as Richard just said, we're one week out of Easter. This is Holy Week. And uh, uh, I, I, he, he mentioned all the Easter service. I couldn't hear back there. Did he mention Good Friday service, by the way? So we're having a Good Friday service on Friday. It'll be totally different from the Easter services at 7 o'clock on Friday in this room right here. So uh, come join us. But uh, we're at Easter week, and so that means we're bringing the series that we've been in uh, through this season of Lent to a close. Now, uh, Lent has historically been a season that the church celebrates in which we take an opportunity to just pause and reflect on our own sin leading into Easter. It's a season of repentance, if you will. That's why it begins with Ash Wednesday and the ash on the forehead and everything like that, right? It's a season of repentance. So we have been reflecting together each week on our sin. Super exciting. And God's grace. And how God's grace meets us in the midst of our sin. Now, if you've been here, we've been rolling through this theological map here, uh, nerd alert. This is basically the flow of each sermon. Each week, we've been looking at a certain sphere of human life and how sin impacts that in all its variegated forms. This week would be there on identity, and we're going to talk about shame. Oh, what an important topic. And, uh, and then as we move through the sermon, we, we move towards Jesus, and we talk about how Jesus brings rescue or healing to our sin, who he is in the face of our sin. And we've been hitting on some of those key passages along the way in the process. Uh, So that's where we're heading today. We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter one to begin. So if you're able to stand, please stand with me now, just out of respect uh, for God's word. Uh, If you can't stand, that's okay. Just put your heart, put your mind in a place of submission under, under the authority of God. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. We're going to read 1 through uh, 14. It's a bit of a long passage, but it's a good one. And as I read through this, I want you to think about all the identity markers the apostle Paul puts on all of you who are in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, This is a letter from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. 
And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring uh, bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. The word of the Lord, you can be seated. Thanks be to God for all his word. What a passage. Oh, if you would just believe that was true of you. Uh, Mary McLeod Bethune was one of the great educators and civil rights leaders of the 20th century. She advised presidents, she served the army in World War II, and her philosophy of education took. Has anybody ever heard of the head, hands, heart method? That was Mary. Uh, Mary believed in the full formation of her students. She believed in challenging them intellectually, head. She believed in the refinement and dignity of hard work and labor, hands. And she also believed that it should all be built upon a spiritual foundation, heart. Uh, Mary's parents were actually slaves. Uh, They were given their freedom in 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, but she was one of 15 siblings, I think, and 10 of her siblings were born on the plantation. Now, she was born free in 1875, but she understood that for a little black girl in the United States at that point, well, being born free didn't necessarily mean that things were equal. As she grew up and started to understand some of the differences that were uh, being espoused between white people and black people, she came to the conclusion on her own that the only difference between white people and black people was that white people were learning how to read. They were taught, they were educated. So she threw herself into her own education, threw herself into her studies. And by the age of 13, she got a scholarship from a Quaker woman to go to Scotia Seminary in Concord, North Carolina. Then she went on to Moody Bible Institute after that, graduated, and she decided she was gonna become a missionary. So she applied to be a missionary to Africa with the Presbyterians. And uh, I don't understand this one, but she was turned down because of the color of her skin. So she then decided to become an educator. And God gave her a dream to start her own school. So with a dollar fifty to her name, she traveled to Daytona Beach, Florida, and she started the uh, Daytona Educational and Industrial Institute for Girls in 1904. She started with five students. The reason why she went to Daytona Beach is because a lot of beach resorts were being built up there and there were many black families who worked at the resorts. So she saw their children as children, much like her when she was a kid, children of high promise but no educational opportunity and she wanted to give it to them. Believe it or not, the school grew. 
even though she faced racist attitudes and even though they had nothing, like no money, no supplies, it grew. She would literally send the girls out into like the alleys and the garbage dumps in order to hunt for supplies. Old packing boxes became desks. Charcoal splinters became pencils. They used moss to stuff mattresses for the girls to sleep on. I mean, these girls literally had to work to provide for themselves. Uh, They baked, they cleaned, they scrubbed, they farmed, then they sold vegetables and pies, then they worked cleaning houses in some of the neighborhoods. Basically, Mary just taught these young girls how to hustle. Greek and a toothbrush, that's what she told them education was all about. Now, in all their spare time, and you can tell they had a lot, uh, Mary formed them into a traveling choir to raise money. And uh, they were singing at a hotel one time when a businessman approached her and said, I'd like to see the school. So she welcomed to the school. And uh, when he pulled up and laid eyes on the four-bedroom shanty house that she was renting and educating these girls in, uh, he asked her, hey, where's the school? (laughs) Now, apparently Mary, uh, Mary was a good fundraiser too because this man caught her vision. He helped get her into a better building and he became her first trustee. His name, James Gamble, co-founder of a company you may have heard of called Procter & Gamble. And it is quite the incredible story. Now, uh, you know what I find most inspiring about Mary? She was unashamed in the most humble sort of way. She was black, poor, and a woman. Some days she was raising money from P&G, and other days she was scrubbing the floors next to her students. Yet, she would teach her students that there's no such thing as menial work, only menial attitudes. Unashamed, confident. She knew why she was here. She knew what she was worth. She was not captive to the opinions of others or captured by the low places that she had to stoop down in order to rise up unashamed. How? You gotta ask yourself, how? How does a woman have such internal fortitude against all the odds? Well, Mary tells us how. She said, John 3, 16, Jesus. It was read to her as a kid by one of her teachers, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, repeat that word after me, say whosoever, Okay, yeah, hold that. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. She said that verse and that word changed her self-view. She writes, with these words, the scales fell from my eyes. It's a reference to Paul. And the light came flooding in. My sense of inferiority, my fear of of handicaps just dropped away. Whosoever, it said, no Jew nor uh, Gentile, no Catholic nor Protestant, no black nor white, just whosoever, just whosoever. These words stored up a battery of faith and confidence and determination in my heart, which has not failed me to this day. Mary knew her, her, uh, uh, who, uh, what her identity was, and she knew where to find it, in Jesus. I'm thankful for that. Now, do you know anyone like Mary? You know anyone like that? Because some people have this just sort of irresistible quality where they are humbly unashamed. They're just totally comfortable in their body, unshakable 
by the pressures or by the prejudices or by the approval of this world. I find those people so attractive. These are beautiful people to me because for most of us, that's not our experience. For most of us, we carry around daily the heavy burden of shame. And it only gets heavier the longer we carry it. So uh, the best book I've ever read on shame is this one right here. It's by Louis Schmieds. Uh, he has passed away around the turn of the, the 21st century, uh, but he's uh, an ethicist, a theologian at Fuller Seminary. You should read it. It's very accessible, very accessible. It's not a nerd, too much of a nerdy book. Um, but the reason why I show it to you today is not just to say that, that you should read it, but also as like a blanket citation for everything I say for the rest of the day, because this book was really, really formative to me. Now, uh, when he defines shame, this is what Schmieds writes. It says, shame is a very heavy feeling. Isn't it heavy? It's a feeling that we do not measure up and maybe never will. Don't miss this next line. It comes when no one else is looking at you but yourself. And what you see is a phony, a coward, a bore, a failure, a person whose nose is too big or legs are too bony or a mother who is incompetent at mothering. He says, and score yourself on, a, on, on one to five here, okay? How many are true of you? He says, shame prone people, one, discount their positives, two, magnify their flaws, three, judge themselves by undefined ideals, four, translate criticism of what they do into judgment of who they are, and five, read their own shame into other people's minds. I love that last one, by the way. One of the quickest cures for shame is to stop mind reading. Stop pretending like everybody thinks about you as much as you think about you or what you think about you. Because I guarantee you most of the time they don't. Now I found most helpful in understanding shame, uh, contrasting it with guilt. Because shame and guilt sometimes can feel kind of the same, but they're actually two very different things. So guilt has to do with behavior while shame has to do with identity. Basically, in street talk, guilt is, I did something bad, but shame is, I am someone bad. It's fundamentally an identity challenge, you see? That's why research actually shows that shame is highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders, while on the flip side, guilt is actually inversely correlated with those. So apparently it's a lot easy to get over it when you feel like you did something wrong than it is to get over it when you feel like you are someone who's just wrong from the inside out. So uh, when I was a kid, um, I was basically just at church or on a field, church and baseball. That's where you could find me. So my life revolved around, my dad was a preacher. So I'd be at the church or I'd, I'd played all sorts of different sports. And I, I was good at sports. I was. Um, in fact, uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I made all three varsity teams, uh, soccer, basketball, and baseball. Started on all of them. Loved it, loved sports. You would think that may, would make me like the big man on campus. But... It ended up, especially the first two years of high school for me, serving to do the exact opposite. The upperclassmen just put me through hell. Apparently I took the spot on the team of some of their friends. 
And I took the spotlight on the field from some of them. And so they hazed me, they abused me, they bullied me. I remember one of my teammates was the news anchor for the school news channel that we would watch every week. And he would do the sports update. And on the sports update in front of the entire school, 1,600 students, he'd call me names. Pudge McKenzie, he'd call me to pick on my weight. Pudge McKenzie had nine points, four assists last night in the basketball game. Pudge McKenzie went two for three with an RBI. And I'm just sitting there in the class like trying to you know, laugh it off and act like it didn't bother me. But I'm also sitting there thinking like, where's the teacher just to stop him? They vandalized my locker, they hid my stuff, they spray painted my cleats, they yelled at me after games. I can remember distinctly, uh, there was a buzzer beater in a conference game that ended up in my hand, shot it up, missed the shot, lost the game. And uh, walking into the locker room, one of the upperclassmen just cussing me out immediately. Sorry, man, I tried my best, didn't wanna miss it. And by the way, those aren't even the worst stories. Those are the PG-13 ones for church. It just gave me the worst time, all because I was good at sports. And I just couldn't understand that, so I carried around shame through the hall, hallways and even beyond school. I, it's funny, uh, several years after, one of the bullies reached out to me on Facebook, and he apologized. And I appreciated that. But uh, when he reached out, I totally played it off. I was like, what? No, you, I don't remember that. It's fine. It's fine. It didn't bother me at all. No. That was a lie. Now, I have found life is a lot like high school. Most of us just want to fit in, be admired, be cool. It's just the definition of cool changes when you get a little older. But most of our lives are spent in shame avoidance. Elizabeth Nolan Brown actually cites psychological research that shows that a lot of the holy outrage that people are ventilating on social media today about, you know, freedom issues or justice issues or whatever altruistic cause they're into. This is the research. She, she, says, uh, she says, it's often a function of self-interest wielded to assuage feelings of personal culpability for societal harms or to reinforce one's own status as a very good person. Translation, I'm a good person. That's what people are yelling as they shout on Facebook at those bigots or those deplorable people or those woke people or those fill in the blank for whatever pejorative that people are using about others today. In a New York Times uh, column, David Brooks calls our culture today shame culture. Shame culture. Interesting, this is what he writes. Uh, he says, many people uh, carefully guard their words, afraid that they might transgress one of the norms that have come into existence. When a moral crusade spreads across campus, many students feel compelled to post in support of it on social media within minutes. If they do not post, they'll be noticed and condemned. Some sort of moral system is coming into place, he says. Some sort of new criteria now exists which people use to define correct and incorrect action. The big question is, he writes, what is the nature of this new moral system? Hmm. Now, Andy Crouch uh, argues that the nature of this new moral system isn't actually morality at all, it's acceptance. 
That's what it boils down to. People are building their morality today, not based on like a coherent assessment of what's right and wrong. Rather, they're building their morality based on inclusion and exclusion. What gets me included? What gets me excluded? What gets me celebrated? What gets me canceled? Okay, I'm going to build my brand around the former rather than the latter. Now, call me old-fashioned, y'all, but um, I just think that morality should be about morals. Morality should be about what's universally right or wrong, no matter what the crowd accepts or deplores. Morality is about God's truth, which transcends culture. But no, 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 not in our shame culture. In our shame culture, morality is tribal. And if you want in the tribe, you must accept our doctrines and our beliefs and our speech patterns and our candidate. And by the way, they're all constantly changing depending on whatever bullies in charge or whatever political thing's hot. Oh, and also, most importantly, you must agree with us on our enemies and heap shame upon them with us. No friendships with them, even if they're in your family. The very shame you came here to avoid, you have to heap on them. Oh, the hypocrisy. So basically, the moral system of shame culture is just bullying, (laughs) y'all. It's bullying. Apparently, high school never ends. Sorry, youths. Now, great resource here. You can throw it on the screen behind me. Uh, That sort of describes this cultural phenomenon well. It's called Christians in the Age of Outrage, written by uh, Dr. Ed Stetzer. He's at Wheaton University. A really solid book. Um, In this book, he actually tells several stories of how the outrage mob will crucify you without due process. I want to tell you two on both sides of the aisle. First, in 2018, the online publication Pitchfork published this clickbait headline. Coachella co-owners, latest charitable filing shows deep anti-LGBTQ ties. Now, for those of you who don't know, by the way, Coachella is a, a music festival. It's like a total like bohemian sort of vibe. Um, super Gen Z, young, hipster, Nulu, okay, Nulu, it's Nuluy, artsy. Uh, and it's run by an entertainment company that is owned by Philip Anschutz, who's a Christian. Uh, so the story goes on to list uh, five organizations, Christian ones, that he donated money to that apparently prove his anti-LGBTQ sentiments. The biggest gift was to Young Life. Anybody ever heard of Young Life before? So yeah, some of my best friends found... Uh, Jesus through Young Life. Young Life's a nonprofit ministry whose goal is to help middle schoolers and high schoolers follow Jesus. Uh, He gave $185,000 to Young Life twice. But what, uh, what made his support for them so scandalous is that Young Life has a policy that asks their employees to accept the historically Christian view of human sexuality, which states that sex is only appropriate between man and woman in a committed marriage relationship for life. Now, this has been a universally accepted part of Christian teaching for 2,000 years now. Uh, It's accepted around the globe, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant. But uh, they gave no consideration to that in the article. Publication made no attempts at dialogue. They didn't want to engage in the nuance. They didn't want to talk about what sort of sexual boundaries may be appropriate or not for a flourishing life. 
They just wanted the world to hear, Young Life and the owner of Coachella hates LGBTQ people. Why? Well, outrage has no time for dialogue. Won't be distracted by nuance. The goal is shame on you. Either fall in line or you will be disciplined. If you don't bend to our rules, you'll be disciplined on social media. You'll be disciplined by popular culture. You'll be disciplined by the politicians and the celebrities and maybe even disciplined by HR. Another story, Beth Moore. Anybody know Beth Moore? Any women ever done her Bible studies? What a brilliant Bible teacher, a gift to to the church. Um, She's literally trained millions of women in God's word. So she has given her life to. Now in the fall of 2016, as the election headed into the final stretch, uh, this headline was published by Breitbart. Christian speaker, Beth Moore, stands in the gap for Hillary Clinton. What happened? Well, uh, that October, after the 2005 Access Hollywood tapes came out, which caught our president, uh, or I guess he was the Republican candidate at the time, speaking of women in incredibly vulgar terms that I won't even insinuate in church to describe his sexually abusive behavior with them. Uh, When all that hit, Moore spoke out. She tweeted her disgust with it. She talked about her own experience with sexual abuse and integrated it with her Christian faith. Now, what made Breitbart's clipbait so dishonest was that in no way, shape, or form did Beth Moore ever endorse Hillary Clinton. But again, that doesn't matter. Breitbart twisted the truth. They unleashed the mob. Their goal was to draw the party line and put her and anybody who agrees with her on the other side of it. You see how this works? Now, here's my encouragement to you. Don't be the mob. Don't be part of the mob. Oh, and even more importantly, don't be shamed by the mob either. I just remind you on Palm Sunday that the mob turned on Jesus too. Now we could talk about outrage culture all day, but there are actually some more timeless sources of shame that I know many of you are struggling with as well. Let's just name some of those. How about father and mother wounds? father and mother wounds. In his book, Schmeeds points out that at a deep emotional level, every child just wants their parent to take ownership of them. That's my boy, that's my girl. He said a good parent takes ownership of their kids in three ways. Uh, one, they take responsibility for them, which by the way, sounds like duh, but you, I, if statistics are correct, then half the people in this room grew up in like a one parent home or like a single, or in a broken home of some sort, right? So the whole taking responsibility thing is a big one. Two, a good parent takes ownership by, by, by uh, showing pride or feeling pride in their kid. And three, they take ownership by finding joy in them. I am so proud that this is my son. And I just beam with happiness watching her, watching him grow up. Now, again, this is important because when parents don't own their kids, oftentimes kids can grow into adults who believe they aren't worth owning and they carry that shame into the rest of their life. Here's another one, uh, the comparison trap. Comparison trap. Anybody? Some people feel unhealthy shame 
because they are forever comparing themselves with some other successful person. Everybody else's son just sort of darkens your day, right? There's always an er, always somebody a little smarter, a little prettier, a little better, a little richer, whatever it may be, and that just rubs you. And then like if you ever pass them, there's, you just find somebody else to shoot for. You always feel perpetually unsatisfied. Next one, how about perfectionism? Some people believe it's not God who holds the whole world in their hands, but it's they who do. And so they take this enormous amount of responsibility to make sure everything's right and everything's in just the right place. And when things fall apart, which they inevitably do because you're a flawed person and we live in a flawed world, they take personal responsibility for it. Why can't I get things right? How about horizontal approval? Some people just can't approve of themselves until other people approve of them. In fact, that's what social media kind of serves as today. It's just like, like me, please, like literally, like me. Validate my existence with a heart. Stranger. And there's gender-based shame. Um, I actually heard Brene Brown uh, talk on this one. It's so good. Um, she said, shame for women is a web of unattainable and competing expectations about who we are supposed to be. Whew, that's heavy. And shame for men boils down to one thing, she said, do not be perceived as weak. If you are, take on the burden. Oh, then there's the shame that comes from just sort of existential meaninglessness. Now, what's that, Tyler? Well, it's basically the logical conclusions of the religious, or maybe we should just call it irreligious way, our society sees the world. It's a without God worldview. Okay, if there's no God, then I'm just, I'll be the first one to tell you here, then we don't have meaning. We don't have a purpose. You're here because we got on the right side of luck, right? You're math and matter, decaying matter on decaying matter. And one day you die. After you acquire lots of woundedness in life, you die. And then one day after that, the world implodes or explodes into a bajillion different pieces and shatters off into outer space. And nobody remembers anything anyone ever did anyways. That's the future. And like we wonder why in our country, not in the developing world, but in our country, there's an opioid epidemic or uh, you know, a mental health epidemic. Because people are wrestling down the logical conclusions of a without God worldview. Last source of shame, graceless religion. Graceless religion. Now, before I go in on religion, um, for what it's worth, I wanna be clear. Scripture actually teaches that there's such a thing as good shame, healthy shame. It's what we might call conviction from the Holy Spirit in our life. When we don't love someone well or we don't obey God like we know we ought to, uh, then you feel this sort of shame in your heart, this sort of heaviness almost. Tay Lee Lau, professor of New Testament, uh, wrote it like this. He said, godly shame actually guides our future choices by constraining us from doing anything that might dishonor God or dishonor the church or dishonor others or even bring dishonor upon ourselves. Now, worldly shame destroys, he says, but godly shame restores. Godly shame shows us we've grieved the Holy Spirit, but it also assures us of grace. Godly shame is the shame we need in order to walk worthy of our calling as God's children. So just to be clear, not all religious shame is bad. It's sometimes, every once in a while, you're gonna hear something from this stage or hear something from a Christian brother or sister or read something in your Bible that hits and you're like, I need to change something. And that's not a bad thing. But that said, some people grew up in religious environments that were far from that, that were devoid of grace, that had no truth in love, rather just full of uh, condemnation and judgmentalism. 
And because of that, you either grew up to hate God or to hate God and yourself, which is a shame. No pun intended. Now, I want you to put the list back up there real quick. Just put the list up there of points of shame. And would you just do me a favor? Just take about 10 seconds, 15 seconds. I want you to read back through it. And I want you to be honest with yourself. What sort of shame are you carrying today? heavy stuff, y'all. It's heavy stuff. Now, whether you are experiencing healthy shame or unhealthy shame, the New Testament tells us that there is one solution for it, and it's the same solution for both. It's this beautiful word called grace. God's amazing grace. Smeads, uh, he says it like this. He says, the experience of healthy or unhealthy shame is only healed by God's amazing grace. And this is what Paul confirms for us in Ephesians chapter one. Let's just walk through a couple of those passages one more time. Ephesians one, verse one. Paul says this. He says, this letter is from Paul. It's chosen by the will of God to be the apostle of Christ Jesus and writing to God's people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now, if you read how letters um, in antiquity were written, they always have sort of like greeting or salutation at the beginning. Very similar to the way we might write letters today. There's like a common sort of uh, framework of or like you know, five or 10 different lines that a lot of people put at the beginning of a letter. Back then you might say, uh, dear sister, good health to you or something like that. But Paul, scholars say, Paul kind of customizes his own greeting. He says, grace and peace. Did you know that in all 13 of Paul's letters in the New Testament, this is at the beginning in his greeting, grace and peace. Or in other words, all of Paul's written theology that we have today begins with grace and peace. Now, Ephesians is an especially grace-filled letter. Paul goes on in verse three. He says, all praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You know what grace means? Like the Greek word for grace just means gift. And Paul's talking about the gifts that we hear. All the spiritual gifts and blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is yours in Christ because we are united with Christ. Now, what I love next is that Paul goes off for the next 11 verses and he just starts rattling off some of those blessings. Not all, but some. And oh, how it might change your life to begin to see yourself the way that Paul, Ephesians chapter one, sees you in Christ. First, he says, uh, chosen and loved. That's who you are, chosen and loved. Before the world was made, while you still were in the womb of the triune God's creative plans, he took ownership of you like a good parent, like a good father would. You're chosen. 
Sin is not the starting point of your history or human history, your chosenness is. And on our first birthday as humans, we were born into love and gifted God's image. You are chosen and loved. You are holy and blameless as well. All y'all caught up in a comparison trap, you can stop straining and striving to prove yourself to the world because when God sees you, he doesn't see your deficiencies, he doesn't see your sin, rather he sees your savior because you are holy and blameless. You're also adopted and inherited you are not without a family. The heavenly father claims you. So all you orphans in the room, all you motherless and fatherless, all you abused and abandoned, all you estranged from your parents, carrying father wounds that cut deep, the son who has all the authority of the father has cut you into the inheritance, praise God. You are highly favored and belong. So all you thirsty for the horizontal of favor of the world, just give it up. You don't need it. You don't because you have the favor of God and no one else needs to validate your existence but him. You are rich in kindness. So all of you who have been pillaged by graceless religion, receive the riches of God's great kindness today. You are forgiven. So all you perfectionists can lay that burden down. You're flawed, sorry, but you're also covered by the blood. You are revealed his purpose. There is meaning to the universe. There is a purpose. We aren't just decaying matter on decaying matter hurtling into outer space. We have a future and you have a role to play in that future in the present as well. That's good news. And you are sealed by the spirit. The Greek word here for, uh, for the spirit is, uh, is erebon. It's something like a, a down payment or a deposit. Actually, in modern Greek, the word erebon can be used to talk about an engagement ring. And that's what the spirit is for us. It's a foretaste. The spirit is, uh, is an engagement ring promising us that one day we'll sit at the wedding feast of the lamb when Jesus rips open the sky and consummates our union with him in full. That's who you are. Like the idea behind the fact that we just get a, a dose of the spirit now is that anything you've ever felt that's spiritual before, ever had a spiritual experience? Anything you've ever felt spiritual before is just a foretaste. It's just like, it's just the beginning. Have you ever uh, felt like God spoke to you? You ever experienced a miracle? You ever walked outside and looked at nature and said, wow, God is real. Look at that sky. Wow, God is real. Look at that mountain. And he knows me. Like you feel that in the deepest part of your bones. Anytime you've ever had experience like that, that is just a drop in the bucket compared to what we will experience when the fullness of the spirit is given to us on, uh, one day. You are chosen and loved. You are holy and blameless. You are adopted and inheritors. You are highly favored and belong. You're rich in kindness, forgiven. You are revealed his purpose and you are sealed by the spirit. I'm telling you that's a better identity than anything the world has to give you. And praise God in his infinite grace for it. Now, one of my favorite stories where Jesus illustrates this is Mark chapter five. Uh, you might remember this story. In Mark 5, this synagogue leader named Jairus grabs Jesus and he's like, I need you to heal my daughter. She's gonna die. And Jesus does eventually heal his daughter. But on the way to heal his daughter, there's this huge crowd around him. I kind of get the impression that's slowing him down because everybody wants a piece of Jesus, right? Uh, and there's this one woman in the crowd. Do you remember? She'd been bleeding for 12 years. She wants to get to Jesus. She thinks to herself, if I can just touch this guy, if I can just touch him, then I'll be healed so she starts pushing through the crowd. She's not supposed to be pushing through the crowd. She's bleeding, she's impure, she's unclean. But she starts pushing through the crowd anyways and eventually she gets to him and she touches his cloak and what happens? She's healed. 
And she's overjoyed. She's like, I, she, I'm healed, right? But, but Jesus stops. He stops the crowd. He's like, well, hold on, hold on, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Jesus, there's a lot of people. Like, they're all trying to touch you. He's like, no, no, no. I felt power come out of me. Who touched me? And this lady's joy kind of turns to terror. She falls down on her knees before Jesus and she confesses what she did to him. And then Jesus says this, Mark 5, 34. He said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Daughter, he calls her daughter. Hmm. Now this is a picture of my daughter, Larkin Rose. I'll tell you what, every mom and dad, every grandpa and grandma in this room could show you a picture in about, they could show you more than a picture in about five seconds if you were to ask them because of the affection they feel for their daughter, for their son, for their kids. Did you know that in all the gospel accounts, this is the only time that Jesus ever calls someone by that word, daughter, only time. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the story. He uses the word, but only for her, which makes me wonder, something else is going on here than just a physical healing. And there was something else going on. Jesus wasn't just healing her physical ailment. He was healing the spiritual and social stigma that she had. Mosaic law, Leviticus 15 says that a woman bleeding like that was perpetually unclean, which means she couldn't go into worship services. Like technically her and her husband couldn't sleep on the same bed. She couldn't prepare food for her children. They couldn't sit in the same chair. Like it just was so restricting. But what I love about Jesus is that he literally reverses the Mosaic law and just flips it on its head. And when she touches him, he doesn't get unclean, but she gets clean. And then he calls her daughter. And I think to myself, you're 30 years old. Who do you think you are calling her daughter? She's been bleeding since before you got your driver's license. Jesus, who does he think he is calling her daughter? But exactly, who does he think he is calling her daughter? So look, one of my favorite preachers, uh, John Tyson, says the best thing about the Christian story is it begins by answering the deepest longing of every human heart. And that is this, does anyone really want me? Does anyone call me son? Will anyone call me daughter? Do I really matter in the grand scheme of things? Now, again, bad news. If there is no God, then the answer is no. Math and matter, that's all we are. We're just on the right side of luck for now. But if the Christian story is true, then know this. It literally begins with the truth that God wants you. Like the only reason you exist is because God wants you. He didn't need you. He didn't need to create you. He created you and I human beings because he wanted you, because he wanted to. This is what Paul's after, Ephesians 1, 4. Even before the world was made, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his highs. God decided, uh, decided in advance to adopt us, to adopt you and I into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. You give him great pleasure. And that's just the beginning of the story, by the way. God created us because he wanted to, and then for the joy set before him, Jesus died for us. 
So look, you exist not by accident. God wants you. And I believe today that some of you are here specifically, specifically to hear me say, Jesus wants you. He may not have you. And I want you to know that grieves his heart. Luke 15 describes our God as a father just gazing the horizon, waiting for the rebel son, waiting for the rebel daughter to just come to their senses and come home. And you know what he does when he sees them on the horizon? He runs. He doesn't give a lecture. He doesn't say grovel and apologize first. No, he runs to his son. He runs to his daughter, embraces them, brings them to the celebration feast, calls the neighborhood and says, my son was dead, but now he's alive. He's lost, but now he's found, and so we have to celebrate. In fact, Luke 15 tells us there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents in 99 who has not gone astray. He wants you. You're his daughter. You're his son. Won't you come home and experience his amazing grace today? Look, Scripture teaches, and we've been railing on this all series, that part of the incorporation process into Christ, where we accept this grace is symbolized and enacted through the ritual we saw Rachel smile her way into earlier. It's this ancient ritual that Christians have been doing in rivers and lakes and oceans and bathtubs and pools and baptistries for 2000 years now. It's called baptism. And as we stand on the cusp of Easter, there is no better moment for you to make that decision. So I would encourage you today, if you've never made the decision to be baptized, you can see the number on the screen or you can come see us in the fireside room after. We want to help you make that step today. I'll close by reading Ephesians 2.4 and then we will reflect and take communion. Paul says, but God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are, you are, God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he's planned for us.